All right, let's talk about part two of Heart of Darkness. Now, the first episode in part two is Marlowe overhears a conversation between the manager and his uncle. Uh, his uncle was one, part of the, the El Dorado exploring expedition. And he hears the the the, uh, the nephew, who is the manager, complaining, Am I the manager or am I, or am I not? I was ordered to send him here, there. It's incredible. So he's upset. His authority has been undermined. The company told him to send him, it turns out. Now, we don't know instantly who he's talking about. We figure out that it's, uh, that it's Kurtz. Uh, and again, that's very typical of this book. You kind of are dropped into the middle of something and gradually figure out the context of what's happening. Um, and he points out that he's just hearing these fragments of conversation. Um, make rain and fire weather. One man, the council, by the nose. Um, again, you get you get to say, and this is you know it's in one way it's very realistic. You when you hear or overhearing a conversation, you hear just snatches of it, but it's also uh, almost symbolic. Fire and uh, make rain and fine weather. One man, the council, by the nose. Uh, you know, again, it's evocative uh, without being pinned down, like so much of the uh, what goes on in Heart of Darkness. And the uncle says, you know, that you know the manager is worried about Kurtz, and he says, well, the climate may do away with this difficulty for you. He's suggesting that uh, uh, we've already heard that Kurtz is ill. Maybe he will get sick and die, and that would solve the manager's problem. Any problems he has with Kurtz wouldn't be around if Kurtz was dead. Uh, this conversation points out something that it's another interesting ambiguity in the book. Is that on the one hand, Kurtz is a superstar in the company. Uh, he's he's the one who brings in the most ivory which is what makes him so valuable to the company. On the other hand, the, the manager doesn't like him. Uh, the, there are elements in the company that resent him, uh, that maybe resent his success, uh, in fact, uh, which is also ironic. He's, he's uh, disliked because he's so successful. And we hear another incident about Kurtz on, uh, near the top of 1976, that Kurtz had apparently intended to return himself the station being, by that time, bare of goods and stores, but after coming 300 miles, had suddenly decided to go back, which he started to do alone in a small dugout with four paddlers, leaving the half-caste to continue down the river with the ivory. The two fellows there seemed astounded at anyone attempting such a thing. They were at a loss for an adequate motive. As for me, I seemed to see Kurtz for the first time, it was a distinct glimpse, the dugout, four paddling savages, and the lone white man turning his back suddenly on the headquarters, on relief, on thoughts of home. Perhaps, setting his face toward the depth of the wilderness, towards the empty and desolate station, I did not know the motive. Perhaps he was, it was just simply a fine fellow who stuck to his work for its own sake. All right, so here, this incident, uh, he was bringing back, he was coming back to the station to get supplies and to bring ivory, and instead of coming in, he turned back and went back to the, the inner station where he, was, uh, where he was getting the ivory, and 
the the manager and his uncle cannot understand why somebody would do, why wouldn't you come here and you know be at least a little closer to civilization uh, but uh, for the narrator this is something that seems admirable about Kurtz uh, though he can't understand it either this again this is very typical of the way things work in this novel um, there's this event that happens uh, but there're all of these hazy interpretations around it. Uh, and the people in the story can't quite make it out. The one explanation that uh, even that, uh, you know, he says, that, you know, he could see the, uh, the, uh, the them paddling home back in the, in the dugout. He says uh, uh, they, they, that he had turned his back on headquarters on relief on thoughts of home, perhaps. So even that, he's, it sounds like he's made a, 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 a interpretation, but then kind of slips a perhaps in there like, well, maybe, the, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you can't really pin Kurtz down. That's part of what makes him so fascinating. And we get near the bottom of 1976 a quote from the report that uh, Kurtz wrote. He says that each station should be like a beacon on the road towards better things, a center for trade, of course, but also for humanizing, improving, instructing. Now, this is what uh, Marlowe was talking about earlier, that the this is the idea behind colonialism that makes it uh, bearable. Uh, that we're not just here for trade. Well, we're here for trade, of course, but really we're going to be beacons of light, humanizing, and I think, you know, you need to recall that image of that painting of the woman bearing the torch who is herself blindfolded. How can you bring light to people when you yourself can't see? Um, I think that's a question that lurks in the back of that idea. Now, Marlowe is, is discovered that is discovered that he's been eavesdropping, and that brings this conversation quickly to a, a halt. Uh, but he's going to be going up the river with the manager to Kurtz. And the way he describes that, the middle of 1977, going up that river was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world, when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. An empty stream, a great silence, an impenetrable forest. The air was warm, thick, heavy, sluggish. There was no joy in the brilliance of sunshine. The long stretches of the waterway ran on, deserted, into the gloom of overshadowing, overshadowed distances. On silvery sandbanks, hippos and alligators sunned themselves side by side. The broadening waters flowed through a mob of wooded islands. You lost your way on that river, as you would in a desert, and butted all day long against shoals, trying to find the channel till you thought yourself bewitched and cut off forever from everything you had known once, somewhere far away in another existence, perhaps. So, again, these, these wonderfully evocative descriptions that Conrad has here. But it's like you're going back into uh, prehistoric times. Uh, you're lost here the way you would be lost in the middle of a desert. You can't find your way. And, you know, you think a river, well, that's a pretty, you just let the river take you. No, you get lost on the shoals. You get caught up on things. It's hard. It's, it's, uh, it's a difficult journey to make. Um, and he says, it was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. 
uh, that sounds uh, an implacable, some implacable force, an inscrutable intention, a uh, very powerful force that you, but you don't understand what the purpose of it is. Uh, this is the, the, the world that he's moving deeper and deeper into. And he talks on the boat, there are two basic groups of people. There are the, what he calls the pilgrims, which is very ironic. Pilgrims is a religious term, people who are making a religious journey. Uh, but these pilgrims are the, the company men who are there to exploit the colony and get the most money out of it. And the other group are the cannibals, who apparently are, are cannibalistic, but we don't actually see them eating any other person. And he says, kind of right in the middle of 1978, uh, fine fellows, cannibals, in their place. Uh, that's, you know, uh, that's both uh, complimentary and condescending. Uh, and again, it points in two different directions at once, as so many things in Art of Darkness do. Uh, they were men one could work with, and I am grateful to them. And, after all, they did not eat each other before my face. They had uh, brought along a provision of hippo meat, which was rotten, and made the mystery of the wilderness stink in my nostrils. Puh, I can sn sniff it now. Uh, so they have this rotten hippo meat. It was what, all that they had to eat. Um, so these two groups, you've got the the pilgrims, uh, like the manager and the other company people, and the cannibals, uh, who are, he says, actually kind of, they, they were they were good to work with. Um, and he says that actually the, the work is what saved him. At the top of 1978, when you have to attend to things of that sort, to the mere incidents of the surface, the reality, the reality, I tell you, fades. The inner truth is hidden. Luckily, luckily. So he's mentioned this before. Getting caught up in just the mundane details of what you're doing lets you not realize the, the horrible reality of the situation that you're in. Uh, and, but he does tend to think about that reality now, or at least in his narration from looking back on this, he's able to see some of that, some of that reality. I don't think he ever thinks he fully comprehends it. But he talks about the, the effect, how this all made you feel. He says at the bottom of 1978, it made you feel very small, very lost, and yet it was not altogether depressing, that feeling. After all, if you were small, the grimy beetle crawled on, which was just what you wanted to do. Where the pilgrims imagined it crawled to, I don't know, to some place where they expected to get something, I bet. For me, it crawled towards Kurtz, exclusively. But when the steam pipes started leaking, we crawled very slow. Right? So this, again, that, this image of a, a grimy beetle slowly crawling along. And he says, in a way, that was, it was... Um, you feel small and lost, and yet, in a way, there was something, as he says, not altogether depressing about that. He doesn't understand what kept the, the pilgrims going, crawling on. Uh, for him, it was this fascination with Kurtz. For them, he suspects it has to do with the, with the profit motive. Uh, but they keep going on. It says, we penetrated deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness. Uh, we were wanderers on a prehistoric earth. This is the top of uh, 1979. 
And as they're traveling along, they see the the native Africans on the, the, the bank. And he describes them. The steamer toiled along slowly on the edge of a black and incomprehensible frenzy. The prehistoric man was cursing us, praying to us, welcoming us. Who could tell? We were cut off from the comprehension of our surroundings. Uh, so again, he, you see, he sees these events, but what is it? These men, what are they? Are they cursing us? Are they welcoming us? Are they praying to us? What's going on? Uh, you can't understand it. This is something that is that you know is beyond your comprehension. And he says the earth seemed unearthly. Uh, it's a wonderful paradox. The, the, the earth seemed unearthly. This doesn't seem like a real place. It was unearthly, and the men were. No, they were not inhuman. Well, you know, that was the worst of it, this suspicion of their not being inhuman. So he's talking about the, the African natives. He says that it would have been easier if you could say, oh, well, they're just inhuman. But Marlowe doesn't, knows they're not. Uh, again, or again, at least there's a suspicion that they're not. And if they are human, just like us, maybe we're just like them. Uh, and, the you know, the civilized and barbaric are closerly, closer united than you might think. Uh, if uh, this mission to bring them light uh, may not be <laughs> all it's cracked up to be if we're just as dark and barbaric as they are. Uh, and as he says in the middle of that page, the mind of man is capable of anything because everything is in it, all the past as well as all the future. So again, it's, you know, we these enlightened uh, pilgrims uh, have all of the, the, the darkness of all humanity in them. Uh, and so, again, it, all of this is kind of incomprehensible to him. He can't quite make sense of what his role is, what their role is, what he's even looking at, what any of the behaviors of these natives means. And he talks about one of the cannibals in particular, the, the fireman. That's the, the guy who throws the fuel into the boiler so that the steam engine will keep going. Uh, the very bottom of 1979, over to the next page, he says, He squinted at the steam gauge and at the water gauge with an evident effort of intrepidity. And he had uh, filed teeth, too, the poor devil. And the word, uh, the wool of his pate shaved into queer patterns. And there or and three ornamental scars on each of his cheeks. So this is a very exotic appearance, Right. He's got these shaved patterns in his hair. His teeth are filed to be pointed. He's got ornamental scars on his cheeks. And he says he ought to have been clapping his hands and stamping his feet on the bank, instead of which he was hard at work, a thrall to strange witchcraft full of improving knowledge. He was useful because he had been instructed, and what he knew was this that should the water in the transparent thing disappear, the evil spirit inside the boiler would get angry through the greatness of his thirst and take a terrible vengeance. So here he said, here, this guy, this is one of the, the cannibals, is that he belonged more in the, on, of these natives on the bank who were kind of screaming or yelling at them as they go by. But here he is in kind of doing, and notice that he turns the, uh, stoking of the, the boiler into a superstitious ritual, as if there's not much difference between the the the, the work that civ so-called civilized people do and the 
quote-unquote, uncivilized superstitions of the Native Africans. They're kind of blurred together here, and he can't tell where this guy fits. Uh, so again and again, all of these dichotomies of light and dark, of civilized and uncivilized, get very confused in Heart of Darkness. Now, on their journey up the river, they stop by this, this hut of reeds that has some firewood uh, stacked there for them, and there's a message. It says, wood for you, hurry up, approach cautiously. Now, think about that, hurry up and approach cautiously. Well, how do you do both? Uh, It's contradictory. You're getting mixed signals. Uh, Heart of Darkness is very much a book about mixed signals. But the other thing they discover there, besides the firewood, is this book, An Inquiry into Some Points of Seamanship. And as he says, it's not a very enthralling book. But what he likes about it was that it was a singleness of intention, an honest concern for the right way of going to work, which made these humble pages uh, thought out so many years ago luminous with another than a a professional light. Uh, So here again, the idea of focusing on something concrete and particular and not getting lost in the, the kind of deeper meaning of things. But, of course, Marlowe can't help himself from getting uh, philosophical and into the deeper meaning of things. Look in the middle of 1981, he says, What did it matter what anyone knew or ignored? What did it matter who was manager? Once so, uh, one gets sometimes such a flash of insight. The essentials of this affair lay deep under the surface, beyond my reach and beyond the pow- my power of meddling. So, again, he's confronting the idea that he's in a world where he his insight is that he doesn't know anything. His flash of insight is that th- this is too deep for me. It's deep under the surface, and I, I, can't, uh, I can't get to it, and I certainly can't interfere with it. Uh, that's the, you know, the, so the insight becomes um, almost a kind of, uh, an apathy. Uh, again, he's in a very bizarre, ambiguous, conflicted state throughout this book. Now, as they get closer to Kurt's station, they are in a fog and hear these cries from the bank and are about to be attacked. You know, they say, this is the uh, uh, bottom of 1982, we will all be butchered in this fog. And Marlowe says, it was very curious to see the contrast of expressions of the white men and the black fellows of our crew, who were as much strangers to that part of the river as we, though though their homes were only 800 miles away. The whites, of course, greatly discomposed, uh, had, besides a curious look of being painfully shocked by such an outrageous row, the others had an alert naturally interested expression, but their faces were essentially quiet, even those of one or two who grinned as they hauled at the chains. So here, the the, uh, contrast he sets up between the pilgrims and the cannibals, uh, the the pilgrims almost always come out worse in those comparisons. They're kind of painfully shocked that somebody would uh, attack them. The, uh, the, The cannibals are essentially quiet, they're kind of dealing with this in a, in a much more 
uh, uh, almost zen-like way. They're not getting upset about it. They're just going on with their business. Um, and he says that their their head man uh, was talking about uh, uh, this and says, he, he tells him, catch him, he snapped, with a bloodshot widening of his eyes and a flash of sharp teeth. Catch him. Give him to us. To you, eh? I asked. What would you do with him? Eat him, he said curtly, and leaning his elbow on the rail, looked out into the fog. Um, and then he realizes, you know, these guys must be really hungry. Uh, the, the, these cannibals don't really have anything to eat but rotten hippo meat. And in fact, some of the pilgrims threw the, the, the smelly, rotten hippo meat over the side of the boat. And he wonders, why didn't they just eat us? They outnumber us. They're exercising a kind of restraint. And that idea of restraint is a very important one in Heart of Darkness. But notice that it's the it's the cannibals, it's the Africans who are exercising restraint, not the pilgrims. And you can look also at the kind of the absurdity of their wages. It tells them that they, they were giving them every week three pieces of brass wire. Uh, and the idea was they could you know, use that to buy food, but there's no place for them to buy food. They're in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. He says, so unless they swallowed the wire itself or made loops of it to snare with the, the, the fishes with, I don't see what good their extravagant salary could be to them. Here again, we get the kind of surrealistic absurdity of the way that the, the company has set up things in, in the Congo. And look on the, the top of uh, 1984. He talks about the manager. Uh, this is in the middle of the, they're in the middle of the fog. They're, they're about to be attacked. And the manager says, I would be desolated if anything should happen to Mr. Kurtz before we came up. I looked at him and had not the slightest doubt he was sincere. Now, remember, this, he's heard that the, he, he was hoping that Mr. Kurtz gets, you know, dies. He's, he hates him. And, but he says, he was just the kind of man who would wish to preserve appearances. That was his restraint. So the only restraint the manager has is, well, we have to keep up appearances. That's the only thing that restrains him. Uh, it, it seems like there's something much deeper that's restraining the cannibals. Uh, uh, something says more about their character and not just kind of the superficial hypocrisy that is restraining the manager. And notice how he describes the, the, the cries that he's hearing and it makes him think that it's not an attack. He says, but what made the idea of attack inconceivable to me was the nature of the noise and the cries we heard. They had not the fierce character boding of immediate hostile intention. Unexpected, wild, and violent as they had been, they had given me an irresistible impression of sorrow. The glimpse of the steamboat had for some reason filled these savages with unrestrained grief. The danger, if any, I expounded, was from our proximity to a great human passion let loose. Even extreme grief may ultimately uh, vent itself in violence, but, the, but more generally takes the form of apathy. So he's saying the, the, these don't sound like they're attacking us. It sounds like they're in mourning. Um, at the top of the next page, he says, what we afterward alluded to as an attack was really an attempt at repulse. So they're not attacking them, they're trying to push them away. Um, 
again, that's a very interesting idea just in the general uh, context of colonialism. The, the natives aren't attacking them. They're trying to get them to go away. Uh, the action was very far from being aggressive. It was not even defensive in the usual sense. It was undertaken under the stress of desperation and in its essence was purely protective. Uh, now again, so much in this book does, it, it, that's, this applies to a particular situation. The natives will find out want to don't want Kurtz to, to leave. They don't want him to go. So they're trying to protect him from the other Europeans coming and taking him away. Uh, but it also, I think, says something about the relationship, more general relationships of the uh, the the colonialists and the colonized. Uh, when the colonized attack, it's not really an attack. You know, the colon the colonizers might call it that. What it is, it's it's they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to make you go back where you came from, where you belong. They're where they belong. You go back where you belong. Now, as this uh, this attack, we'll call it that, goes on, we, the, the helmsman, uh, who is uh, one of the the uh, cannibals, has to uh, help steer it. And there there are snags in the uh, in the river that they have to avoid. And then look at the uh, top of 1986. It says sticks, little sticks were flying about, thick. They were whizzing before my nose, dropping b below me, striking behind me against my pilot house. All this time, the river, the shore, the woods were very quiet, perfectly quiet. I could only hear the heavy, splashing thump of the stern wheel and the patter of those things. We cleared the, cl the snag clumsily. Arrows, by Jove! We were being shot at! Now look at how... Uh, uh, Conrad presents this. So he's describing his... Marlowe is describing his experience here. Uh, they're focused on trying to get a, a, around this snag in the river. And while it happens, all these little sticks are flying through... What the hell are they? And it's not until he's finished, you know, uh, his concentration on navigating past this barrier that he says, oh, oh my goodness, it's arrows. Arrows they're shooting at us. Uh, so he doesn't realize what they are until he has time to, you know, kind of process what's going on. And again, that happens quite a lot in this book. Um, when they, uh, the uh, Europeans, when the pilgrims uh, try to shoot back, uh, the pilgrims had opened with their Winchesters and were simply squirting lead into that bush. A deuce of a lot of smoke came up and drove and drove slowly forward. I swore at it. Now I couldn't see uh, the ripple or the snag either. So in trying to defend themselves, the, the, the pilgrims shoot their guns. Well, that causes a big cloud of smoke that gets in his way, and now he can't see where he's going or where the, the dangers in the river are. So their, their attempt to uh, protect themselves has actually put them in greater danger. Uh, again, that's the kind of weird paradoxical things that happen in uh, Heart of Darkness. And then we get the scene where the, the helmsman falls on Marlowe's feet, and he's got the shaft of a spear in his back, and he, he bleeds all over the ground, and Marlowe's shoes are full of his blood. Um, and it, it's at this point where uh, Marlowe 
uses the steam whistle, and that scares away the people. The, the their guns didn't do it. Their you know nothing else did. But the steam whistle scares them, and they run away. Um, as with as he says, a wail of mourning, mournful fear, and utter despair. And as he's standing there with his shoes full of blood, he says, "I was morbidly anxious to change my shoes and socks." Um, and he says, he is dead, murmured the fellow, immensely impressed. No doubt about it, said I. They're talking about the helmsman, uh, tugging at the, uh, like mad at the shoelaces. And by the way, I suppose Mr. Kurtz is dead as well by this time. Um, so he's thinking that, and, and that really upsets him. In fact, that seems to upset him, the idea that Kurtz might be dead, uh, more than the fact that this, his helmsman has just been killed in front of him. You know, he throws his, his, his you know, blood-filled shoe overboard uh, and realizes, you know, exactly what I've been looking forward to was a talk with Kurtz. Uh, and he says, then I realized that the man presented himself as a voice. Um, and he, But says, we were too late. He had vanished. This, the gift had vanished. Uh, so he can't... Uh, at this moment of of despair, not at the fact that somebody has died, but the fact that he might miss out on this chance to com- to be, have a conversation with Kurtz. Remember, that's really what's been keeping him going. That's what's been keeping the little beetle crawling slowly forward. And then in the middle of uh, 1988, he, he starts, uh, Absurd, he cried. This is the worst of trying to tell. Here you all are, each moored with two good addresses, like a hulk with two anchors, a a butcher round one corner, a policeman round another, excellent appetites and temperature normal. You hear normal uh, from year's end to year's end, and you say, absurd, absurd be exploded. Absurd? My dear boys, what can you expect from a man who, out of sheer nervousness, had just flung overboard a pair of new shoes? Um, and here he's, again, one of the main themes of this is the difficulty of communication. You say, okay, it's absurd. You know, here I am. I just threw away a pair of new shoes uh, instead of cleaning them. He says, but it's hard to explain this to you because you weren't there. You're, you're living in this very civilized world that you've got, as he says, you've got a butcher around the corner, you've got a policeman around the other corner. I think those are very two significant uh, professions he picks. Uh, butchers and policemen do your dirty work for you. The butcher cuts up the meat for you. The policeman makes sure that you're safe. You don't have to do it yourself. Well, here in this primitive world, you do have to do all that yourself. And then at, look at the bottom of 1988. And this is after uh, the, the narrator says he was silent for a long time. Then Marlowe begins again. He says, I laid the ghost of his gifts at, his, at last with a lie, he began suddenly. Girl. What? Did I mention a girl? Oh, she is out of it completely. They, the women I mean, are out of it, should be out of it. We must help uh, them to stay in that beautiful world of their own, lest ours get worse. Oh, she had to be out of it. Now, at this point in the story, there's no telling what who he's talking about. We're going to find out who he talks who he's talking about at the end of the the novel. But at this point, 
it, it, he is incomprehensible to us. We can't quite wait. Who are you talking about? Who did? Who was this? Um, and then he goes on talking about Kurtz and the way Kurtz looked impressively bald, uh, like a ball, an ivory ball, um, which again, this almost kind of stream of conscious images uh, he talks about, or the, the way that Kurtz talked in the middle of uh, 1989, my ivory, oh yes, I heard him, my intended, my ivory, my station, my river, my everything belonged to him. It made me hold my breath in expectation of hearing the wilderness burst into a prodigious peal of laughter that would shake the fixed stars in their places. Everything belonged to him. But that was a trifle. Um, so now he's talking about Kurtz, whom we haven't met yet. Um, again, this this part of the 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 way that the way the story is told makes it it drives home the point of how difficult it is to understand things. And this is difficult, especially for a first-time reader, to understand because we don't have the context for this yet. Uh, when, when you reread the book, it makes a little more sense. Uh, but at the moment, it kind of puts you off kilter exactly the way he's feeling off kilter. Uh, and he goes back to his, his theme, you can't understand. How could you? with solid pavement under your feet, surrounded by kind neighbors, ready to, uh, either, uh, ready to cheer you or to fall on you, stepping delicately between the butcher and the policeman in the holy terror of scandal and gallows and lunatic asylums. So, you, you know, you're afraid of scandal or, or being executed or being sent to a lunatic asylum. Well, there's none of that here in the, in the heart of darkness. How can you imagine what particular region of the first ages of man's untrammeled feet may take him into by the way of solitude, utter solitude, without a policeman, by the way of silence, utter silence, where no warning voice of a kind neighbor can be heard whispering public opinion. Now notice that what he's talking about is that civilization is this series of restraints, that there's a, a, a there's no policeman, there's no kind neighbor, who's reminding you of public opinion about you know which might cause you to uh, to behave a little bit better. Uh, all of that those restraints have been put away, and his audience who lives in a world of those restraints can't understand what the world is like without it. But he has seen that and is trying to communicate it to us. He says, of course, you may be too much of a fool to go wrong too dull even to know you were being assaulted by the powers of darkness. I take it no fool ever made a bargain for his soul with the devil. The fool is too much of a fool, or the devil too much of a devil, I don't know which. Or you may be such a thunderingly exalted creature as to be altogether deaf and blind to anything but heavenly sights and sounds. Then the earth for you is only a standing place, and whether to be like this is your loss or your gain, I won't pretend to say, but most of us are neither one nor the other. That is, most of us are not fools or these exalted creatures. Fools can't be tempted by the heart of darkness because there's no, you know the devil can't tempt them or they're too foolish, I don't know. Uh, you may be one of these exalted creatures who is kind of morally above it all and is never tempted by darkness. And even that, notice he says, I don't know whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing, but it doesn't really matter because most people are not 
on those extremes. They're not fools or saints. Um, it says, the earth for us is a place to live in, where we must put up with sights, with sounds, with smells too, by Jove, breathe dead hippo, so to speak, and not be contaminated. And there, don't you see, your strength comes in. The faith in your ability for the digging of, of unostatious holes to bury the stuff in, your power of devotion, not to yourself, but to an obscure, back-breaking business. Here again, that theme of, of attending to your business allows you to, to, to focus and gives you a clarity. And that's difficult enough. Mind, I'm not trying to excuse or even explain. I'm trying to account for, for myself, account to myself for, for Mr. Kurtz, who's, who, for the shade of Mr. Kurtz. Now, again, if this is kind of hard to follow, that's part of the point. He's kind of rambling here. He's trying, he's, but his general, the general gist of it is pretty clear. He's saying, you can't really understand what was at stake here. You live in a very rational world. Uh, you've got everything set up for you. Uh, but this is not a world like that. Um, and so he goes on and starts talking about Kurtz, you know, that uh, his his birth, he was, his mother was half English, his father was half French. All of, of all Europe contributed to the making of Kurtz. That's the top of 1990. Uh, again, that's a very thematically weighty point that in, in some ways Kurtz is the apotheosis, is the, the, the symbol of European man. All of Europe contributed to his making. And he talks about a, a report that Kurtz was writing about the the, the colonial the process of colonialism, um, and says this was. But this must have been before his. He wrote the report before his. Let us say, nerves went wrong, and caused him to preside at certain midnight dances, ending with unspeakable rites, which, as far as I reluctantly gathered from what I heard at various times were offered up to him. Do you understand? To Mr. Kurtz himself. Now what he's suggesting is that there were these human sacrifices that were given to Kurtz. And remember, he's been talking all this time, this group, the cannibals, and here he is implying that Kurtz was a cannibal. Maybe not literally, but he was accepting these human sacrifices from these native tribes uh, to him. And says, well, he must have written the report before all that happened, before he kind of went native. Uh, and most of the report is about, uh, again, these kind of ideals of colonialism. Uh, it says, we must necessarily appear to them, savages, in the nature of supernatural beings. We approach them with the might of a deity. Uh, by the simple exercise of our will, we can exert a power for good, practically unbounded, etc., etc. Uh, from that point, he soared and took, and took me with him. The peroration was magnificent, though difficult to remember, you know. It gave me the notion of an exotic immensity, ruled by an august benevolence. It made me tingle with enthusiasm. This was the unbounded power of eloquence, of words, of burning, noble words. Now, he's talked about Kurtz as a, a voice. And here in this report, he, he's got the, he's saying this is the, the exalted place that the European man can take in the colony. Uh, he's almost godlike. Um, 
and says, you know, moving is a moving appeal to every altruistic sentiment. It it blazed at you, luminous and terrifying, like a flash of lightning in a serene sky. But then there's this scrawled note at the end of it, a handwritten note at the end of this report. Exterminate all the brutes. Okay, well, wait, that doesn't really fit with all the high-minded stuff. So here again, we get these conflicts and ambiguities, this darkness and light that are folded in together in this in this story. And then after this long digression about Kurtz, he gets back to the, the, the dramatic situation of his story of the helmsman who has died at the top of 1991. Poor fool. If he had only left the shutter alone, he had no restraint, no restraint, just like Kurtz, a tree swayed by the wind. Uh, now that, again, suggests that that's the problem, that Kurtz has no restraint, uh, that that's what's led to whatever kind of breakdown that he's had. Now, when they actually get to the, the station, they see a man, uh, a, a white man, and he calls him a harlequin. Uh, he's, he's Russian. He's dressed in a patchwork like a, like a clown or a harlequin. Um, and he is, it tells him about uh, Kurtz that you don't talk with that man, you listen to him. Uh, and it turns out that this is the, the Russian who had the, the, the book that they found with, with the firewood, and he was very excited to get it back. Um, and he will be a, kind of a, a guide into Kurtz in the third section of Heart of Darkness. So for next time, think about how this Russian, this Harlequin figure, uh, responds to Kurtz, what, he, what new insight he gives us into who Kurtz is and how he operates. And we will get finally in this section the actual actual meeting between uh, our narrator Marlowe and Kurt, Mr. Kurtz, and think about what those how those meetings go. What do they talk about? What are the impressions that Marlowe has of Kurtz? How are they different from what they they were before? How how do they change? And look particularly, they're going to take or try to take Kurtz back to the the uh, main station. But he dies along the way, and look at how what his final words are, and how they the impact that they have on the narrator. Uh, one other thing to think about is that there are two women in this final section of the book. There, but one is a a, a native woman who seems to be uh, Kurtz's mistress, and the other is his what what the story calls his intended his fiance back in Europe. And think about, the, first of all, the contrast between those two women, how, what their relationship is to Kurtz, and what Marlowe's relationship is to them. Uh, think about how that works in this final part of Heart of Darkness. All right, well, I thank you for your attention, and I will talk with you about the end of Heart of Darkness next time.